When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. Your dollar is a vote. If you've been a Money Rehab listener for a while now, this isn't a new concept to you. It's the idea that if you spend money on something, you're enabling that company to continue its operations. And so you're endorsing its business. We talked about this following George Floyd's murder and how supporting Black-owned businesses put money into the hands of the Black community and supported the success of those communities. And on the flip side, if you shop with companies who have historically denied opportunities to the BIPOC communities, you're supporting the success of that business and their ideals. So giving money is a vote. But here's something we haven't talked about yet. Taking money is also a vote. It's a question I've had to answer for myself. I got the opportunity to partner with a brand, and I'll just be honest and say it, it was Robinhood, the trading app. Robinhood wanted to pay me a lot of money for their endorsement, but I was really skeptical about that company's ethics. I'd heard compelling research that Robinhood is built to incentivize users to make really risky bets that hurts users and benefits Robinhood. So... I said no. I would not take their money because I didn't want to introduce Robinhood to you. I didn't feel good about it. This is something I've watched my friends struggle with many times. I've had friends take money from the Koch family, for example, who has a large share of the petroleum industry and has invested a lot of money into opposing climate change legislation. I've known friends who are W-2 employees and don't agree with their company's stance on questions like data privacy. I've also known entrepreneurs who have taken investments from Qatar. Qatar, being the country in the Middle East with a long history of supporting terror, including Hamas, the terrorist group responsible for the attack in Israel last week. In fact, one of the leaders of Hamas lives in Doha, the capital of Qatar. These are not, though, experiences unique to the people I know, but a question many people and institutions are grappling with worldwide. I recently spoke about this with Dr. Charles Small, who founded ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy with Elie Wiesel. Here's Dr. Small. It's an issue that's happened right under the noses, I think, of American authorities for decades. And essentially, money has been coming from Qatar, and they basically fund using soft power activities in the West, namely in universities, in the media, they're investing. We've been doing research into this issue for now for about eight years. In the last two years, we were joined by Yehuda Barlev, who is a leading forensic accountant and expert in terror financing. And we've been able to identify nearly $1 trillion in assets that is being used to put funds into entities, countries around the world, from, from North America, South America, Africa, certainly the Middle East and Europe. And they're investing money into major corporations like banks, car companies, 
Harrods. Uh, they own a large part of Heathrow Airport. Their investments are really around the world in legitimate major companies. And they're also giving money to universities around the world and certainly in the United States. We've been able to construct um, a chart, a web of how the funds are coming from Qatar to various uh, intermediaries into universities. So we've been able to trace a significant amount of the funds, but I'm sure that we've only been able to trace and identify a, you know, probably a small portion of the funds. But we've been able to identify you know, tens of billions of dollars going into the universities. The term soft power was coined during the Cold War by a political scientist, Joseph Nye Jr., who defined it as a country's ability to influence others without resorting to coercive pressure. Coercive pressure would be classified as hard power, and examples of hard power are military actions and financial sanctions. Soft power, by contrast, is exerted through strengthening partnerships and fostering goodwill via financial donations or cultural exchanges. The way I think about it, though, when it comes to finances, is soft power is giving money, hard power is taking it away. You might wonder whether soft power is too, well, soft to work. Here's what Dr. Small said about that. So we run a program at Oxford University in the summer, and we run a program where we train professors on issues of anti-Semitism, and we had a one day dedicated to the use of soft power in American universities. And at, at the end of this one day program with all these experts there, one of the students asked the same question. You know, they said, you know, can the funds really influence curriculum and education in the United States when grants are given to universities? And I told the student, you know, we run a program that costs about $350,000 for the Summer Institute at Oxford University. And it's a very intensive training program for professors. And I asked the student, you know, did the last few weeks at Oxford University influence your understanding of anti-Semitism and the use of soft power? And he said, yes, it was amazing, you know, amazing summer institute. And I learned so much. So I said, could you imagine a few weeks at Oxford with $350,000 has influenced your life? Imagine if billions and billions of dollars were being put into the education on issues like anti-Semitism and terror financing, what would be the impact? So, of course... Funding universities is an expression of soft power by by governments, by countries and institutions, and it has an impact. And we can even take, you know, a small step back for a second, and I can kind of summarize it in a very simple example. And in terms of anti-Semitism, uh, so I started our institute with Professor Elie Wiesel, and Elie Wiesel always taught us that anti-Semitism is not a parochial Jewish problem or a problem of Israel. It's a problem of humanity. And once this vulgar form of hatred is unleashed, it knows no boundaries. And it will start attacking other members of, of our society and community and institutions, and it knows no bounds. And I think we're beginning to witness this on the streets of America so the concern here is that soft power can turn into a quid pro quo arrangement. If a company supports Hamas and is investing in airports, can that translate into looser security in those airports? A lot of Dr. Small's research is on universities, and I want to be really clear here. Universities are places for people to exchange with different ideas and cultures. 
It's important to have diverse representation on campuses. Yes, Qatar is a Muslim-majority country, but that's not what makes Dr. Small concerned about these donations. The concern is that Qatar is a country that supports terrorism. In other words, the issue isn't that Qatar supports Muslims. In fact, part of the issue is that they don't. It's a group of people that are speaking in the name of Islam and Muslims. And I would submit to you that the greatest victim of their hatred are Muslims. They use anti-Semitism, they use the attack on the West, but they're, they don't support the rights of Muslim women. They are opposed to moderate Muslims who just want to live in peace and get on with their lives, who are not as extreme as the Brotherhood. So I think it does a disservice for the politically correct people in the West to give them a pass. It's a paternalistic racism. It's a racism of, uh, of low expectations. And if we truly care about Muslims, we have to support Muslims who are brave and brilliant, who are standing up for, for decency in the face of extremism. And, and, and they're risking their lives. Some of us in the West may, I don't know, maybe I, I risk tenure, or I risk uh, being socially acceptable, but I can deal, you know, I can deal with it. But Muslims standing up to this uh, hatred are risking their lives. And I think we need to support them. As Dr. Small mentioned, his team was able to uncover $1 trillion in undisclosed assets. And the Department of Education is now starting to crack down on finding the schools that don't disclose who their big donors are. Dr. Small breaks down the money trail. Texas A&M, they received $1.5 billion in undocumented money. So now I think Texas A&M will be in trouble moving forward because they didn't disclose the funds that they received as they are obligated by law. Uh, for example, Stanford University just paid a small fine of $2 million because they were receiving 11 professors received money from China and it was not documented. And uh, Stanford was just fined $1.9 million. It's a slap on the wrist. So according to U.S. law, this was law that was passed during the time of Nazism. There was a fear that universities were going to start to become pro-Nazi. So there was a law that was created in 1943 that universities that receive money from foreign sources that exceeds $250,000 are obligated to uh, report it to the Department of Education and the IRS. And they have to disclose the amount and the source of the country and which individual or foundation. So universities are not disclosing. So in our research, when we found the $3 billion and it led to the federal investigation, Yale University, for example, um, there was some sort of clerical error, and they didn't report for four years. Harvard University, as an example, they would only report the total of how much they received from foreign sources, but they wouldn't divulge the source country or the individual or foundations that gave the money, and they still don't. They refuse. So during the federal investigation, the government warned the universities that they had to disclose, and then many universities suddenly... You know, a lot of disclosure took place, but still some universities refused to do it. So in our research with our forensic accountants, we, we've uncovered many contracts that have not been disclosed. So we can actually trace the source to the university or, or to the professors or to the institute research centers at different universities. So we've traced many examples, hundreds of examples of uh, of these illegal activities. And with our meager resources, if we can find hundreds of such contracts, I'm sure if a proper federal investigation would take place, that there could be a lot more uncovered. 
Here lies the ethical dilemma. Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. Let's go back to my friend, a Jewish entrepreneur who accepted an investment from Qatar. And truly, that was what the cap table said. Qatar. It's not like he said yes without thinking about it. The truth is, it's really hard to fundraise, especially now. And in this particular economic environment where it's harder to borrow money, it also becomes harder to fundraise. And so the issue becomes, I need this money to do something great in the world. And if I don't have this money, I can't do that great thing. If my friend didn't take the money, someone else would have. If my friend didn't take the money, that would be one less Jewish entrepreneur in the world. Do the ends justify the means? Here's Dr. Small again. So I think in general, in a, you know, in a free democratic free market system, I think there has to be some level of checks and balances and social responsibility. And I don't think university presidents or directors of development office at our best universities would take money from the Ku Klux Klan or organizations in the United States that call for some sort of uh, violent uprising or, or the subjugation of women or the killing of African-Americans. And I think that the heads of universities need to stop taking money from organizations that call for the extermination of Jews, that explicitly calls for it. And they have to do their due diligence. They have to know where their funds are coming from and, and stand up for what the best values of our society are. So that's number one. And number two, I think if universities are not acting responsible, I, I would say it's incumbent upon donors and funders and major foundations in this country to stop giving money to universities that take resources and funds 
from uh, countries and foundations that are calling for the killing of members of their of our society and members of university communities. It's outrageous. And I, so I think there has to be social responsibility. And then on the other hand, I think governments, the United States of America should do a federal investigation into what's going on in universities and where these resources are coming from and to understand its impact that it has on our curriculum, on our syllabi, and our future generations of where, you know, our young people learn to be responsible citizens in universities. But I, I think that from a moral and ethical perspective, everything we do and everything we don't do has moral and ethical implications. All of our actions, all of our inactions has an impact. And if we want to lead, you know, meaningful lives, if we want to have a society with a sense of social justice, we, we need to act ethically. And taking resources from nefarious sources can't lead to good things. And we're not always in positions that make these decisions easy, or, or and sometimes the results are difficult. But uh, I think if we lead ethical lives, we'll get to better places. Sometimes a short-term gain may not be a long-term benefit. When it comes to Qatar, or a group that funds violence and hate, no one should be taking that bunny. But there are some donors that sit squarely in a gray area. If an entrepreneur is raising money for a business that cleans up beaches, let's say, should they not take money from a company that manufactures plastic? If you're employed at a company, does your company share all of your same values? I think in those cases, it comes down to a simple question. Is the good that you can do with the money more powerful than the bad that created it? If the answer is yes, it's a net positive. I think the best way to move forward is to protect yourself from any question of a quid pro quo. So to close, I wanted to give you some tips, plural, that you can take straight to the bank about building that protection for yourself. And they come from a conversation I had with legal expert Peter Raber. Here's our chat. So Peter, if an institution takes money from a donor or an investor. Is there something they can do or add contractually that protects them from any expectation of giving influence or decision-making power in exchange for that money? They better be doing that. I mean, that's 100% something that should be done um, because a lot of people who give money or you know invest expect to have that level of influence depending on if assuming they're making a large enough uh, donation or investment, they're going to expect to have that influence. So if you're a donor, you know, let's say you're giving money to a university, you're going to specify how you want that to be used. And if it's not used that way, you want rights to either get the money back, or you'll have a nice basis to sue the university and say, I gave money to be used in this manner, and you did not use it in this manner. Therefore, you violated our agreement. Same goes for a corporate setting. If you have someone investing in your company, you should be very clear about what their role is and what their role isn't and what their rights are and aren't. Yeah, there's no free money. Is there a clause, like just double-clicking on entrepreneurs who are raising money, is there an easy clause or language or something to put up guardrails that can protect you when taking on that money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there should be language in there that says that, you know, they don't have any power, you know, over the management of the company and that the management of the company is within the full discretion of the company. It's not very complicated. It's like 
three sentences and they have no voting power and they have no other powers over the decisions of the company. And look, if they're someone, an investor who wants to have those powers, then they should be really sure to get that grant of power in the agreement. They would want that. I think the default under most states' laws and like Delaware law, where most companies are located, is that the company would have those powers unless it says otherwise. And especially if they have no voting rights or board seat or you know things like that, there's a lot of factors that would work against them in trying to enforce something like that against the company. And if you're taking the money, are there any red flags you should look out for in language that that donor or investor may provide you? Well, everything should raise a red flag because if you're if you're raising the money, then you should have control of the agreements. You should have a standard agreement that you're using for all your investors. And so if you have an investor who wants to change everything about that agreement or change five items on it, then you should be paying really close attention to what those items are. So I would say just at a very high level, like any change they request should be taken very seriously with a, with very close examination. But if they're looking for voting rights, if they're looking for a board seat, if they're looking for, you know, regular updates, you know, something as innocent as like a a monthly update being re- required or a weekly update or something or quarterly even. I work with a lot of companies who are, who are justifiably reluctant to agree to those things because, you know, I mean, if you're raising money, if you're a young company, you don't have a lot of time to do that kind of stuff. And it's a very easy wire to trip. And then those sessions could be become much broader sessions and and maybe give people a sense of entitlement that they shouldn't have over operations. So that kind of thing is maybe innocent on the surface, but can have deeper ramifications for sure. If they want reporting on employee actions or access to like employees or things like that, you know, that's those are terms you should really not accept at all. Is there anything we're missing here about how taking money is also a vote? Like you vote with your money by giving it and you also vote by taking it and who you're taking it from. So we're really trying to zone in on terror funding inadvertently or explicitly. Yeah, well, you'd want to have a real strong focus on your vetting process and and background checks, you know, having standardized background checks for your investors, asking for references, other companies they've invested in, you know, paying close attention to what banks they're using, things like that, or also what lawyers they're using. Those those are, you know, important things. Like, you know, if you're taking on an investor and all of a sudden they have a lawyer in Panama, let's say, where, you know, a lot of nefarious activity has gone through that country, you know, you may want to take a second look and say, well, you know, look, do you have a, a U.S.-based entity and U.S.-based lawyers we could deal with? or So the diligence process is really, really important. And I think part of that is also seeing who they've worked with before and, and maybe having short talks with those founders or CEOs and what their experience were with these investors. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. 
Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.